Well, this morning, we are continuing our series, The Acts of the Risen Christ, where we have been uh, seeing how Jesus continues his mission to call a people to himself for his glory among the nations, even after he ascended uh, to heaven, and how he continues that work through his people, through us, even still today. And in the first several chapters, we are considering how the gospel spread and the church grew in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. But since chapter 13, we have now turned our attention to how God is taking the gospel to the nations as the first uh, church sends out missionaries uh, to the ends of the earth to spread the gospel there. In chapter 13, then, we considered characteristics of what faithful missions look like. Uh, Last week, we considered the particular details of the message they were proclaiming. And this week, uh, we'll wrap up this first missionary journey considering what faithfulness to God's mission requires of us. And this is relevant to us because even though the kind of difficulties that Paul and Barnabas face that we'll see today are different in some ways than ours, we still face many obstacles to our life and ministry as Christians. Uh, Externally, I think we're all aware that people increasingly don't understand and are even confused by the message that we proclaim. And even when they do understand it, we're seeing increased hostility and opposition to the message we proclaim. And internally, there's, of course, our own flaws, failures, weaknesses that we know, left to ourselves, will fail. We won't get this right. And even when we are pursuing faithfulness, there's the temptation to grow weary. If I were to ask by a show of hands... How many of you at one point in your life have grown weary doing work for the Lord because you don't see fruitfulness? You don't seem to see what God's doing and it's taking a long time? I'm sure every single one of us would raise our hands. So given these challenges, faithfulness to God's mission will require perseverance. Now the dictionary definition of perseverance is doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success both of which are important for ministry. We face obstacles, difficulty, and fruitfulness doesn't always happen quickly. Often it takes a long time. In the same way, if you were to put a seed in the ground, you might not see it sprout a leaf for weeks, months. I don't know, I'm not a gardener. But it takes some time. And in the context of our passage, perseverance is simply steadfastly and faithfully doing what God has called us to no matter the obstacles. So as we walk through Acts chapter 14, we'll see that this text is tailored to teach us that faithfulness to God's mission will require perseverance. Faithfulness to God's mission will require perseverance. Now, we know that this is the point of the passage because this is the point that Paul actually makes when he reflects on his own experiences as he is encouraging a young pastor named Timothy, to persevere through a difficult season of ministry. This is what he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3. You, Timothy, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfast, and even my persecutions and sufferings. The ones that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. The ones we'll read about and learn about today. These persecutions which I endured. Indeed, all who desire to give, live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As a result of all this, what does he tell Timothy? But as for you, continue, remain, endure, persevere in what you have learned and have firmly believed. 
In a time of ministry when people are falling away, in a time of ministry that is difficult for him, Paul's words, based upon his own experience that we're going to learn about today, is to persevere, to endure. And so as we walk through Acts chapter 14, verse 1 through 28, we'll see five ways we should persevere in order to be faithful to God's mission. We persevere against opposition. We persevere using wisdom. We persevere through confusion. We persevere in faithfulness. And we persevere with joy. But before we dive into God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that life and ministry are hard. It doesn't always go the way we hoped. And Lord, we are tempted in the midst of that to give up. And so Lord, we ask that as we look to your word today, that you would set before us Jesus so that we would be encouraged to persevere, to endure because of his glory his goodness, his beauty. Lord, help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately this morning so that Jesus would be lifted up in this place and we would be eager to go from here making much of him no matter what we face. Lord, would you help us to see Jesus in your word this morning? In his name we pray, amen. Well, if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 14, verse 1. If you're using one of our community Bibles, you can find it on page 900. And 23, uh, you'll be looking for a big, bold 14. That's a chapter. And once you've found it, uh, take a moment to ask the Lord to speak to you this morning. You know the particular challenges you face. You know where you need perseverance. Ask God to encourage you this morning with the word he's prepared for you. you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. ready. Wonderful. Look with me at chapter 14, verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Here we see we persevere against opposition. We persevere against opposition. The last week we saw that as Paul and Barnabas were doing ministry in Pisidia and Antioch, they were driven out. And so this week we come to Iconium. And here they repeat the same process they started in Pisidia and Antioch. They go to the synagogue, they preach the gospel there, and a great many people believe, both Jews and Gentiles. But In verse 2, we see that the unbelieving, or literally translated, the disobedient Jews. Reminding us, actually, that unbelief is disobedience. It's rebellion against the God who created us. And so by persisting in their unbelief, their disobedience against the Lord, these Jews stir up opposition against Paul and Barnabas, even poisoning their minds against the brothers, which certainly means Paul and Barnabas, but likely means anyone who has begun to follow Jesus. They have now stirred up people against them. But notice now the logical connection Luke makes between the opposition they face and what they do in verse 3. It says, so they remain for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. This is crazy. They face opposition, and as a result, what do they do because of that opposition? They change their message. They hide. They run away. No, they stay a long time. 
and they speak boldly the word of the Lord. Another way of putting this is that because or since they experienced opposition, they stayed where they were experiencing persecution. They boldly proclaimed the Lord, certainly expecting them to experience even more opposition. So not only are they persevering against opposition, the opposition is the very reason they decide to stay. That is why they stay in the city. I just want us to observe then, opposition to ministry should not always be taken as a reason to withdraw from ministry, to withdraw from relationship. Sometimes opposition is a reason to persevere. If someone's not interested in the gospel, if someone has rejected you because of your faith, it doesn't necessarily mean you should back down. It may mean you need to persevere in love. It may mean you need to speak all the more boldly of the gospel. And in our current culture, this is all the more true. Increasingly, we're seeing, so for someone to have faith in Christ, to actually believe, you need multiple exposures, not just over days and weeks, but over months and years. And so you may experience initial opposition to the gospel, hardness of heart, and yet that opposition may mean you need to persevere in loving them and showing that you are going to be present because you love them as a person, not to just get them to believe. And as you demonstrate that persistent over time, you find an open door then for the gospel. And so sometimes it will take persevering a long time through opposition, rejection, and even persecution to gain a hearing for the gospel. Now this is a different context, but I've seen something like this in a recent story of a pastor's experience at a church. He Uh, assumed the pastorate of a church that had an average tenure of 10 and a half years per pastor, or the longest tenure was seven years. Now, thank the Lord that has not been Northwood's experience. Neil serves faithfully for 35 years, and I've already made it past that two and a half year mark. (laughs) But you can imagine the impact of year after year, pastors leaving. And so as this pastor comes in to love and pastor and shepherd this church, What he finds initially is opposition. Doesn't matter how faithful he's being to the word. Doesn't matter how good ideas his ideas are. The church doesn't want to listen. They oppose him. But why in that case? Because they had learned to believe you're just going to leave. So why bother listening? And it wasn't until he had faithfully pastored this church for a long time that they finally began to believe, oh, you're not going anywhere. And so now we'll start to listen to you. And while the situation in Iconium is entirely different, it's not pastoring a church, but going to unbelieving people, the principle is the same. Opposition isn't necessarily a reason to abandon the ministry, abandon a relationship. Opposition is a normal part of the Christian life. And it may mean you need to persevere against that opposition. So let me make a suggestion to you. Next time you find someone is opposed to the gospel, opposed to your Christian faith, if there's a strain on your relationship, instead of withdrawing, running away, maybe take the example of Paul and Barnabas and persevere against that opposition. Persevere in love. Don't take that as a reason to withdraw, but to engage. Perhaps even grow bolder in speaking the gospel to others as you experience opposition, knowing that God's grace is sufficient. For it's certainly God's grace that is sustaining Paul and Barnabas in this moment. Notice again in verse 3, the message they're proclaiming is the word of God's grace. And 
God had granted signs and wonders to be done by their hand. The message we proclaim, again, is one of grace. On the one hand, we believe that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. As bad as you think you are, the Bible's clear, you're worse. But the good news is this. In Christ, you can be more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. He looks at you and sees you as you are. There's nothing you hide from him. But if you come to him, he loves you. He accepts you. He welcomes you into his family. You don't deserve this love. You can't earn this love. Yet while you were his enemy, God sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty for your sin on the cross. And then was raised to deliver you from the power of sin. And when he returns, will free you from the presence of sin. This is grace. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. Yet we receive this, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And it's this message that can fuel perseverance and opposition. Why? Because as we reflect on what God did for us, we recognize we ought to persevere too. At the first sign of rebellion, God did not give up on us. God continued to pursue us all the way to the cross. And so also we can persevere in loving others. And further, as we think about what this love means for us, if we think about the one who created the world and Christ loves us, what difference does it make if some Joe Schmo rejects us? What difference does it make if we're hated or even persecuted if the God of the universe loves us? When we reflect on all the Father's love for us, opposition suddenly doesn't matter so much. And further, the signs that God provides would have encouraged Paul and Barnabas to persevere as well. They would have been an encouragement that God was at work through them. They're evidence of his grace. And so throughout Acts, we see examples of signs and wonders being accompanied by those who preach the gospel as a demonstration that the gospel is true. It's the way of validating that the message is true. Now, we don't have uh, the time to consider biblically whether signs and wonders still continue today, but I'll just tell you my inclination is to think there's no reason to think they can't. But what we can say is signs and wonders are not the only or even the primary way we can continue to validate the message being preached. One scholar points out that today Christians can validate the messages of preachers primarily by assessing the growth and maturity of a congregation. Does the message point to Jesus? Does the preacher focus on God's word as his, the base of his message? Is the congregation growing in holiness and the fruit of the Spirit and love for one another as a result of preaching? In other words, our life together authenticates, validates, demonstrates that the gospel is true. And this is entirely consistent with what Jesus would tell us he says, the world will know we are his disciples by our love for one another. And so our life together can demonstrate that what I'm saying is true or false. That's why we value as a church Jesus' community and mission. We really believe that our community validates the gospel. It demonstrates that Jesus is real. And therefore, biblical community is not insular and ingrown, but it's missional. It's always expanding to draw others into the life of Christ. And to walk with those who know that Jesus 
has risen from the dead, who believe that the gospel is real, and who have committed to walk together towards Jesus. This is one reason why you'll hear me talking not just about membership, but about meaningful membership. It's impossible for us to love one another the way Jesus describes, unless there's commitment. How can anything show the power of the gospel if at the first sign of difficulty we walk away? That doesn't demonstrate anything. And so we prioritize meaningful membership as a way of clarifying who is committed to us and who have we committed to walking through both the beauty and the messiness of bearing one another's burdens, bearing with one another's weaknesses, rejoicing and weeping and loving and doing good for one another. All of this requires perseverance through the difficulty of relationships. And Northwood, let me encourage you, the Lord is doing this work among us. So many of the people I've talked to who experiencing this community remark on how welcoming, how loving this community is towards one another. And we're growing in that even more. Continue to persevere in this. Because in the same way, signs and wonders validated the gospel message when it was first preached. Today, what we can be confident of is our community together validates the gospel message. And so together then, to be faithful to the mission God has entrusted to us, we must persevere against opposition, even loving and supporting one another in the midst of it. Now, if the first three verses would lead us to think that we must persevere against opposition, we must always stay no matter the obstacle, the next three verses provide a helpful counterbalance. Look with me in verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Here we see we need to persevere using wisdom. Persevere using wisdom. Luke recounts here how the work that Paul and Barnabas were doing was so profound that a division literally begins to run through the people of the city. Some people side with the Jews while other people side with the apostles. But eventually, the Jews and Gentiles together who are opposed to them begin to plot to kill Paul and Barnabas. And this time, instead of deciding to stay, they decide to flee to Lystra and Derby to continue their ministry there. So here there's clearly a tension in the text. The first three verses, they see opposition, and that's the reason they stay. The next several verses, they face opposition, and they begin to go. And we find this kind of tension in other portions of Scripture as well, especially even Luke's gospel that we've been reading in CBR. In Luke 15 this week, we just read Jesus describe God as a father who eagerly is waiting for his rebellious son to come home. While the rebellious son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. We get the sense from this father that there's nothing that would have prevented him from pursuing his son. And yet, in Luke 9, Jesus exhorted the apostles, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. This is something that Paul and Barnabas actually did as they left Pisidia and Antioch. They shake the dust off their feet. So clearly, there's a tension here. Perseverance doesn't always mean staying in the face of opposition. Sometimes perseverance will require wisdom, and we need to flee opposition 
in order to live to minister another day. And so sometimes the best way to make the gospel known may mean remaining. At other times, it may mean relocating. But how do we discern the difference between when we stay and when we go, when we engage in relationship and when we withdraw from relationship? The very easy answer is use wisdom. We need wisdom in order to know the difference. But how do we get that wisdom? Well, first, James would tell us, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God, and he will give it to you. Our God has promised to provide his children with wisdom. So if you find yourself in a situation like this where you're not sure, is withdrawing from relationship or pressing into relationship the wise thing to do? Ask God, and he will give you wisdom. Second, Look to your brothers and sisters in Christ. The Proverbs make it clear that abundance of counselors provides safety and victory. So if you don't know what to do, talk to people. Ask them what they think you should do. And as you seek an abundance of counsel, the Lord will lead you. But finally, consider evidence of God's grace. So certainly, we see in the first half, that the signs and wonders they're performing, all these people coming to faith in Christ, are evidence that God is still working. And so before you back off, before you run, before you withdraw, consider what is God doing? And if you're seeing God do a great work, even if there's opposition, it may be an indication, stay. Even the opposition you face. But if you're seeing no real receptivity, And in fact, you're even seeing something worse. You're seeing your work is actually hardening someone even more to the gospel. Then you may want to withdraw. But in all this, you have to persevere using wisdom. And that wisdom will become all the more important as we consider the people we're speaking to. Look with me in verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had the faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voice up, saying in Lyconian, something I'm sure Paul never would imagine being said, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance, of the city brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past creation and generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. But he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Here we see we need to persevere through confusion. Persevere through confusion. In these verses, we find yet another miracle story, yet it takes a very surprising turn. A man who has not been able to walk since birth is listening to Paul preach, and Paul looks at him and seeing that he has the faith to be made well or saved, that's the same word, a reminder that the salvation we have in Christ actually breaks into our life now. But seeing he has the faith to be made well or saved, Paul tells him, get up and walk. 
He heals them on the spot. And as soon as the crowd sees that, they do something we've not seen before. This is an indication that Paul's audience has shifted. He's no longer speaking to Jews and God-fearing Gentiles who believe in one God, but rather to pagan Gentiles who believe in many gods. And so the crowd immediately begins to assume that Paul and Barnabas are the Greek gods who have come down in the likeness of men. They think that Barnabas is Zeus, and because Paul's the one speaking, they think he's Hermes, who's the messenger god. And although these people saw the miracle they had performed and rightly recognized the power and authority of Paul and Barnabas, they not only misunderstand the message they're proclaiming, but they're so confused, they actually begin to do something that Paul and Barnabas would never want them to do. Let me just say here, this is not something I planned, so this is for free. But if you ever have heard that uh, saying, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words, this is an example of why that makes no sense whatsoever. They are doing the actual work of God, healing someone, and without the message to make it clear what that means, they totally take it in the wrong direction. We need both word and deed. Inside note. So the crowds respond, trying to offer sacrifices to Baal and Barnabas. And so, well, Paul begins to speak to them in verses 15 through 17 to persuade them not to sacrifice to idols. And I want you to notice he's speaking differently than he has before. In previous contexts, the message has been primarily, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God has promised to you. Here, he actually goes specifically to the place where there is the most confusion among his audience. The fact that there is one living God, not many gods. He makes it clear that they have come to preach and perform these miracles specifically so that they would turn from the vain, empty, and dead false gods that these people were worshiping so that they would turn to the one true living God. This God was the creator of everyone and everything. The creator of of all the heavens and all the earth and everything in it. And this God did not just create everything, but his creation points back to his existence. In verse 17, Paul says that God has left a witness to you by giving you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, and by satisfying you with food and gladness. This is what we might call common grace and general revelation. The common grace is a doctrine that says God blesses everyone, just and unjust alike, wicked and righteous alike, by sending things that are a benefit to all people. Or what James would say, every good and perfect gift we have comes from God above. It's not just salvation. It's every good thing comes from God. And one of the points of this kind of gift is to demonstrate that he's real. is to reveal himself generally to all people. Paul will make this more clear in Romans 1. He'll teach that creation is sufficient to teach us that there is a creator God. Creation is sufficient to show us that there is a God who designed the universe as all-powerful and all-knowing, but creation is not sufficient to tell us how we can know him personally. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, I want to invite you to consider what this means for you. If you don't believe that God created all things, how do you find meaning and purpose for your life? If the world we live in is simply a product of random chance and evolutionary processes, then as much as that frees us to determine the meaning and purposes of our lives, it also forces us to admit there's no transcendent purpose. 
There's no purpose for everyone everywhere. It's just self-determined. So as much as I might determine this is what I want to give my life to, we can't say that has any real meaning. But if we're honest with ourselves, our lives and creation itself scream that there is meaning, that there is purpose, that we are not just the collection of atoms, that when we show love to our neighbor, our family member, a friend, that love actually means something. We all long for meaning and purpose in this world. But if we're not created by God, but simply happen to existence, then we're forced to say that longing isn't real. It's just a result of evolutionary processes that help us to continue to live. Or we can go a different route. We can recognize with C.S. Lewis that if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy or explain, then the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. What Paul is saying to the Lystrians is we are created by God and his creation sings of all that he has done. It points out we were made for another world. We were made for purpose. Our longing for meaning and purpose demonstrates God made us for that. And what the scriptures would go on to tell us is that the God who created all things is none other than the triune God of the Bible. One God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And of the Son... Jesus says all things were created through him and for him. Everything is created by Jesus and exists for Jesus to bring him glory and honor and praise, including you. That is the reason you were created. You were created to be in a relationship with God to bring him glory and honor and praise. But humanity rebelled against this. We decided to make meaning for ourselves, to live how we wanted. We wanted to bring glory to ourselves rather than to Jesus. And as a result of rebellion against our Creator, we deserve death, judgment, and separation from Him. We deserve to have no meaning and purpose. And yet, it is through Jesus that God was pleased to reconcile to Himself all things, making peace by the blood of the cross. In other words, If you're not a Christian, the creator you have spurned by living for yourself is the same creator who has loved you enough to make a way for you to be reconciled to him by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so if you want to fulfill the very purpose for your life, why you were created, then I would plead with you, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. When you come to him, he will renew you, transform you, and enable you to fulfill the purpose you were created to fulfill to live for God's glory, both now and forevermore. And he'll do more than satisfy just your belly. He'll satisfy your heart. And so if this is something you'd like to learn more about, we'd love to talk to you more after the service about how you can know Christ and live for him as you are created to. But if you're already a Christian, I want you to notice that Paul speaks differently to this audience than he did to the Jews by tackling the biggest misunderstanding and confusion between the message he was proclaiming and his audience. And in this case, the biggest misunderstanding between Paul and his audience revolved around the fact he was not simply speaking on behalf of the gods or was one of the gods, but rather he was speaking on behalf of the one true God, the only God who created all things. And this point that he clarified was one that he had previously been able to assume. The Jews and God-fearing Gentiles all assumed there is one God. But now what he had previously assumed, 
he needs to clarify in order for them to even understand the gospel message. And similarly today, we as Christians believe lots of things our culture does not. We may have used to been able to assume so many different things, but now we can't assume them if we want people to understand what we're actually saying. And we actually need to then be prepared to speak to the confusion, persevere through the confusion, until they understand what we're actually saying. And while there's a lot of things that are misunderstood, one of the things that's misunderstood is the very same thing we're seeing here regarding the fact that God is the creator. This is especially true among Generation Z, those between the ages of 11 and 26. Here's just a few examples. You may not see the connection, but hopefully it'll get there. It's common for those in Gen Z to believe that they have two lives, their digital life and their embodied life. But to consider their digital life is their real life. In May of 2022, 53% of Gen Z said that abortion should not be legal without exception. And not just that, but many would even suggest it's morally wrong to force someone to give birth. And last, in the last decade, we've seen a growth of from 1 in 10,000 people identifying as a different gender than their sex. At that time, it was primarily men, adults, identifying as women, to now 1 in 50, 10 years later, identifying as something different. But now, not men as adults, but teenage girls identifying as boys. And let me just say, for something like that to take such a dramatic shift, not 1, to 10, 000, 1 in 10,000 to 1 in 50, and going from adult men to now teenage girls, something has happened in the culture. And I would like to suggest to you that it's, this is all symptoms of a failure to account for a creator God who has given us an identity to pursue. And teens, this is just a small sampling of many ways your peers likely believe something different than the Bible does about the way the world works. I recognize some of you may even struggle with this yourself. And so I want to ask you, could you explain why it's good and right for us to prioritize embodied relationships over digital relationships? And adults, can I ask you the same question? Can you explain that without assuming that? Could you explain to this generation how it's actually good and beautiful to preserve the life of the unborn, even at the cost of a mother's choice? Could you explain why teenage girls should rejoice in being women rather than wishing they were males? Again, not assuming it, but actually being able to explain why. Again, even as I ask these questions, I recognize that some of you may not just feel ill-equipped to answer them, but these may be the tensions you're wrestling with. And if this is you, I want you to know that this is a safe place to wrestle with doubts and questions. We're eager to wrestle with the scriptures together. And if these are the questions you're, I would love to be a conversation partner with you to hear the doubts and questions you're asking and hopefully be able to provide a helpful answer from Scripture. And so this is the second thing I want you to know, is I deeply believe the Bible is not just true, but that what it says is good and beautiful. And so although the Bible's answers today may not be intuitive to us, I believe if we dig deeply into the Scriptures, we'll actually see what the Bible says presents a beautiful vision for the flourishing of every human being both male and female. Now today, I can't take the time to answer all these things. That's part of what I'll be doing in the Genesis uh, series this summer as we spend a few weeks in Genesis 1 through 3. 
But to give just a little teaser now, part of the answer to each of these questions lies in the fact that God is our creator and all his creation, including our bodies, very good. When he created us in his image, he created us male and female as embodied people. It's a good place to start. And since God is our creator, we're not free as individuals to determine for ourselves who we are or how we want to live. Instead, we must embrace the identity we've been given, that we've been created with, and instructions that our creator has given for how to live in this world. And so this is what Paul's response to the Lystrians indicates we need to be able to do. Not only do we need to be able to clearly articulate what we believe in the areas where there is the most confusion or misunderstanding, but we also need to be able to articulate how what we believe is good and beautiful. He points out to them that this God who created all things is the same God who has provided every good gift to you. It's not many gods warring against one another so you live in a constant state of anxiety because one God might be for you but another against you. No. Actually, the same God who permitted suffering is the same God who has given you every good gift. He's in control, which means you can trust in this God to be able to accomplish what he promises to do. There's no war going on, but he's a good father who gives good gifts. And even saying this little thing, he's trying to demonstrate the doctrine of creation is good news to his audience. And so we too need to be prepared to persevere through confusion in order to get to both clarity and beauty, helping people to understand what we believe, why we believe it, and why what we believe is good. So if you recognize you're not well prepared to do some of this, to speak winsomely and wisely to the cultural confusions of our day, I'd encourage you, consider where you need to grow and labor to grow in understanding there. And if you need some resources on topics you know you are not well equipped, come talk with me. I can point you to a lot of different things. But in order to be faithful to God's mission, we need to persevere through confusion. Now, despite all the work that Paul does to explain what they really believe to these confused people, he's only scarcely able to restrain them from offering sacrifices. Because as much as they want the power, they still don't love his message. And as a result, they quickly turn on him. Look in verse 19. But Jews from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went out with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Here we see we need to persevere in faithfulness. Persevere in faithfulness. Now, ironically, the very people who are prepared to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas, as soon as the Jews from Antioch and Iconium come to Lystra, they persuade them to stone him. And they do. And miraculously, Paul gets up. And he walks. And you know what he does? He keeps preaching the gospel. It's amazing that after dying, probably... This being probably an account of another miraculous resurrection, he actually goes on to preach the gospel. Opposition not stopping him. 
Again, here, though, we see that these people loved what God could provide for them more than they loved God himself. They loved the healing of the lame man more than they loved God, and so they reject him. But after this, after they go to preach the gospel in Derby and make many disciples, they return to every city that had been dri- they had been driven from by persecution, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And the text tells us they did this deliberately to encourage the disciples and each city to continue in the faith or to persevere faithfully in following Jesus. Now, how do we know that they did this deliberately? Well, first is a lesson in geography. Once they had left Derby, they could have gone home by going east and would have only had to walk 280 miles, also visiting new cities that had not had the gospel preached before. If their aim was simply to preach the gospel in new places, that would have been the path to go. But they, in fact, went west, 200 miles of walking, back to cities where they had been persecuted and opposed. And once they had gone to all those cities, they would still then have to travel by boat all the way back to Antioch. This is an intentional, deliberate decision not to go to new places, but to go back to where they had already visited. And the text tells us what they do on these return trips. They strengthen the souls of the disciples, and they encourage them to continue in the faith. So why is it that they decide deliberately to go back to all the places they had started new churches? Because they recognize, as Paul explains, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Clearly, They are concerned that these fledgling churches that they had to flee from due to persecution might be tempted to give up. And so they want to go back and encourage them, strengthen their faith. And so again, as another aside, let me just say here, some people will point to passages like this to say that the pattern for missions ought to be go to a place, be there as short a time as possible to raise up leaders and move on. And they'll use this text to prove that. Now, short-term have a legitimate place. We just went on one. We're encouraging another one. But this passage doesn't teach what people like that are saying. Because every time they leave, they leave due to persecution. And they go back to these cities, these churches, because they're concerned about their health. They're concerned that they might not make it if they don't get that foundation further secured. And so, they go back to encourage them to persevere in faithfulness, to strengthen their hearts in Christ, so that they would remain faithful. And this should be the concern of every Christian. One role of the local church is to provide us with brothers and sisters in Christ who can encourage and strengthen our faith. Again, as the author of Hebrews tells us, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In order for our hearts to resist the deceitfulness of sin and unbelief, in order for our hearts to remain faithful to Jesus, we need one another. We need to be encouraged. And the text tells us even daily. So I want to ask you, this week, how can you strengthen or encourage the faith of one of your brothers and sisters in Christ here? What step can you take to encourage them to persevere in faithfulness to Jesus? But more broadly, what we see is that what every member of a church is called to do for other members of the church we see is one of the priorities of Paul and Barnabas on this first missionary journey. Not only do they plant new churches, but they go back to strengthen existing churches. And this is why whenever we are prepared to take on new mission partners, we want to prioritize mission partners who are looking to strengthen or start new churches. And this is why 
as we have opportunity to visit mission partners, we will take short-term trips simply to go encourage them, to simply strengthen them in their faith. Because we all know it's hard to persevere in ministry, even wherever you are, but it's even more difficult when you're doing that across a culture and with a different language. And so if we as a church can play even a small role in encouraging our mission partners to persist and persevere for the long haul, we want to be able to do that. Now, one of the ways Paul and Barnabas do this, strengthen the churches that they were visiting, is by appointing a plurality of elders in every church. Although these churches in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra really were churches as soon as they believed the gospel and had committed to walk together towards Jesus, they, over the long haul, would not have been healthy without elders to lead and guide them. And so as they return back to them, these churches that already exist, they begin to appoint a plurality of elders in every place so that they would be strengthened for the future. Although Paul and Barnabas, the two people who the opposition centered upon, will no longer be present in these cities, they know that in order for these churches to continue in the faith and persevere in faithfulness, they will need godly, faithful elders to lead them. And so, having appointed them, they commit them to the Lord with prayer and fasting, entrusting them to the Lord, that the Lord will do a work through them to shepherd their churches towards faithfulness. And this is one of the great privileges and responsibilities of being one of your pastors. Together, we as pastors and elders have the privilege of shepherding this church towards faithfulness in Christ for the long haul. And yet, we also before God have to give an account for every one of you. It's our responsibility before God to give an account. So please pray for us, that God would help us to do that well. And if you're not sure how to pray for your pastors and elders, go to 1 Peter 5 and turn it into a prayer. Ask that God would strengthen us to shepherd the flock of God that is among us, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have us, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in our charge, but being examples to the flock. Pray that God would help us to care for you. Pray that God would help us to be eager to do so. Pray that God would help us to be willing. Pray that God would help us to be faithful and godly examples to you. Pray that God would help us to lead as examples. And pray all this for us so that together we might be found faithful when Jesus returns. In order to remain faithful to God's mission, then we obviously need to persevere in faithfulness. Now look with me in verse 24 to see the last way we need to persevere. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Here we see we need to persevere with joy. Persevere with joy. Finally, their missionary journey is complete and they return to the church that had committed them to the grace of God. And although they had suffered many setbacks, many difficulties, many persecutions, tribulations, and trials, I want you to notice what it is they emphasize here. They declare all that God has done with them. They declare how God has opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And although I'm sure they would have reported on those trials and Uh, sufferings and persecutions as they declare all that God had done with them. Notice the emphasis 
is not on the suffering, but on what God had done. Instead, they rejoice in what God had done in and through them in spite of the opposition. And we face opposition, persecution, trial, tribulation, suffering. This is one thing we can always take great joy in. God is working. In the midst of our suffering, God is working. He promises us that. God is opening the doors for those who formerly did not know him to come to faith in him. And not just that, we can take great joy in the fact that anything we accomplish is actually God working in and through us. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. Or as Luke puts it here in Acts 14, they declare all God had done with them. Accent on God doing this. It's Christ's work through them. And this is one of the ways that God has designed for us to be able to persevere in life and ministry, no matter how difficult it may become. We rejoice and recount what God is doing in and through us, even in the most difficult moments of life. We keep looking until we see God working. And this is all designed to encourage us to persevere in the faith. As we see God working, as we recount God's work among us and rejoice in God's work, our faith is nourished. and We persevere then through any difficulty we may face. And the beauty of all this is that this is what Jesus did first for us. Again, from Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus was not looking forward to the cross. He had to endure it. Jesus was not eager to receive the shame. He despised it. And yet, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And what is that joy? Two things. You in God's glory. Jesus went to the cross to see you be saved, to see you receive his grace, to see you be welcomed into his family. And he did all this so that God would be glorified. As we consider again all that God has done for us in Christ, enduring the shame of the cross for our sake, how can we not then, for the joy of what God has set before us, Endure all things, persevering to the very end. Persevering in faithfulness, persevering against opposition, persevering with joy. Why? Because God is doing work in us and through us, even in the midst of suffering. And so I would ask you, are you facing persecution, suffering, trials? If so, where do you see God working? Or do you see him working in and through you or around you? Though you may have difficulty seeing it now, I can promise you he is. What ministry is the Lord opening on your behalf? Labor to see that. Recognize that work. Rejoice in that work. Tell others of that work so that you might persevere with joy. Because faithfulness to God's mission will require perseverance. We persevere against opposition. We persevere using wisdom. We persevere through confusion. We persevere in faithfulness. And we persevere with joy. So now as we conclude our time together, I want to invite you to reflect on what God has been saying to you through his word. Where is he encouraging you to persevere? Let other people know. So we can be praying for one another. 
as a new family in Christ. So as you reflect, perhaps these questions will help you think and even be good launching pads for conversation later. How is God's grace emboldening you to speak boldly for Christ, even when opposed? What situations might you need to wisely withdraw from rather than continue to speak boldly in? Where do you need to grow in your understanding of Scripture so that you can speak clearly to the religious or cultural confusions of our day? How can you strengthen or encourage your church family to remain faithful to Jesus this week? And what is God doing with and through you? What doors is he opening to you for ministry? Let's take some time to consider what God has been saying to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are working in and through us. That in Christ, you are producing among our church family a new kind of people by your spirit. And so we ask, Lord, that the work you have started, you would bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That you would help us to persevere no matter the opposition, no matter the confusion, no matter the internal weariness, help us to persevere in Christ because of all that he has done for us. And when we grow weary, help us to consider how for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And help us then to trust that you will work in and through us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.